the sample will still be enriched for okay. protozoa swimming to the surface, yeah. even though even though they didn't get fed because they yeah. get programmed. And so, you know, the, the microbes can become programmed. The animal, it's very important to feed on a, you know, very consistent basis for a lot of reasons, but even at the microbial level, it's important. A whole new era of communication in the dairy industry is coming soon. Now you have the brightest minds of the global dairy industry right in your pocket. And what's best? You can listen to all of them while driving to a farm, traveling, or running errands. It's never been this good, and it's never been this simple. The Dairy Podcast Show is only possible with the support and trust of innovative companies like DSM, providing innovative feed additives that improve the efficiency and profitability of dairy production. Excellent by Protecta, a novel product for the management of hypocalcemia. It's uncomplicated excellence. Diamond V, because animal health deserves a healthier approach. And AB Vista. Welcome to this episode of the Dairy Podcast Show. My name is Gail Carpenter. I'm with Iowa State University Extension and Outreach, where I'm the State Dairy Extension Specialist. And today I'm joined by Dr. Benjamin Wenner from The Ohio State University. Uh, glad you could join us today. I will guess I'll go ahead and kick it off. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your background um, and how you got involved with dairy production and your dairy journey so far. So um, for those of you at home who are listening, uh, Benjamin and I have been friends for a while, so so I know a lot of backstory, um, but I'll go ahead and let him tell you guys uh, how he got where he is. I was told to give the censored version. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, so I... I... The Cliff Notes version, yeah. <laughs> um, I grew up in North Central Ohio and uh, was fortunate enough to get scholarships to go to Michigan State. I didn't really have a plan when I got there, except my academic advisor, Sheely, was my academic advisor for about a week when I showed up and he said, he asked me about career goals and I talked to him a lot about research and science and he says, you don't want to be a veterinarian. You need to jump ship now. And uh, so I did. And um, I didn't actually change any of my courses, <laughs> so I took all the chemistries and whatever, which came out to be a good thing in the end, because um, I probably would have skipped those in a heartbeat. But um, I was in that intro dairy class, I think. The, that was the first class I ever took, 9 o'clock Monday morning with Dr. Weber Nielsen, and um, knew absolutely nothing about, uh, about dairy or the dairy industry. I grew up on a, a small beef hobby farm had about 100 rabbits. Not very many people know that about me. And um, I think it was by the end of, by November, maybe, was it was it that year or the following year when you guys were short, one dairy challenge person, and she recommended me. So I was just... I think it was sophomore man. year. Yeah. And so yeah. I was just chilling in my dorm and uh, got the phone, phone call asking me what I was doing. And of course, my answer was nothing. And um, <laughs> so I was told to what meet you at the pavilion hop in the van one of the two of those and yeah. thing we do yeah, yeah i was getting briefed on my role on the dairy challenge team which was write everything you hear and take a lot of pictures and uh, so with absolutely no skill set beyond that and i knew how to use powerpoint i think we made that really nice powerpoint image i still have the like the rolling conveyor belt where the um the person i think becomes de decapitated due to the <laughs> I can't even, not something we recommend for dairy challenge yeah, now I, I can't believe <laughs> um to this day that, that we we won that because then i went on that study abroad and i didn't find out that we won until i got back i think in the spring and that was the local dairy challenge that was like our michigan state the novice yeah. version yeah right uh, but yes. it did kind of prompt me to take some more dairy classes and really nutrition classes at that point and um, it was when I got back that I was able to um, work for Marcus, which I'm pretty sure I can blame you for setting me up with that too, Marcus Holman's research project. Oh, yeah. really? I thought it was the other way I'm around. I'm not sure. Um, and then I took the class with uh, BD, the Ruminant Nutrition, and finally I think found something that I actually loved doing. And I had been balancing diets for animals in high school the animals back at home, but it, I guess it never occurred to me that that was a career or a whole field that careers evolved out of. Um, 
I did my master's in animal well-being and swine management. It's kind of difficult, I guess, to put a finger on it because I took a little bit of a deviation where I enjoyed arguing about um, the ethics behind raising animals. I've got a bunch of books on the shelf about that stuff um, and really tried to focus on studying the, the great minds that lead that, that debate because I think it's really important that we're educated in how we communicate with the consumer, but also how we, we debate the integrity, the ethics, the morality of raising animals for food. But I missed nutrition really badly. So I walked into Perkins' office one day and just asked him if he would ever take a PhD student. He kind of laughed. And he uh, gave me, I don't know, 10 papers to read and asked me to come back. And, um, I didn't realize that that's his informal interview process where he just quizzes you on every single paper you oh. read to see if A, you read it, and B, you can, I don't, I wouldn't say keep up, but maybe hold, <laughs> hold par. Yeah. Um, and so then that's where I, he asked me, he said, I need somebody who can fix things. And I've got these fermenters in the basement. So he showed me the fermenters and I've become, you can disagree with me, but I've become, I guess, one of the people that everyone calls with fermenter questions. I hesitate to use the word expert. Um, but that was not on my bingo card. I don't, I don't know when that happened or how that happened, but we figured out how to make them work. And I guess I just really like trying to figure out why things don't work the way they're supposed to. Somebody got into a bunch of rubbing alcohol behind me. Um, suddenly smelled it. But, <laughs> but um, yeah, I, I don't know. That's that's kind of evolved into its own living, living form. We've rebuilt those fermenters, sold 60 of them. I think at this point to labs all across the U S and into Europe and Canada. And, uh, now I teach. So I went and did tech service and then got the chance to come back and teach. And actually my role is teaching an extension. So it's an interesting, um, transition to try to take really complicated research and then try to dial it back to apply. What did you see on farms while you were doing field, field nutrition or technical service work? What did you see in, in the labs and how can you relate that back to a um, sophomore and junior level nutrition course and kind of lay the groundwork? And then I do undergrad research too. So I try to mentor students in undergrad research. So long windy path, but I've never owned a dairy cow. I'm not sure that I ever will. Um, I have never worked the parlor shift, although I wish I had. Um, and, and I just, I, I do love the industry because I think they're really wholesome people who um, juggle so many different, so many different hats. It's a really fascinating business. And I, I really enjoy studying the whole business aspect of it. Not, not just the nutrition, but all the pieces and parts that play into it. So started because of you, it's all your fault. Oh, <laughs> I'm sorry about that. Everybody. <laughs> <laughs> Otherwise I might still be sitting on a couch somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> oh, I doubt that. <laughs> might still be arguing about, uh, hogs somewhere but so let's talk about let's talk about fermenters a little bit so um i actually kind of stumbled on fermenters too i when i was looking at master's programs like a lot of undergrads i didn't really know what i was what grad school was like or really what to look for in an advisor or anything but um i was intrigued by by the program at the university of minnesota and ended up working with uh dr marshall stern who also happened to have fermenters. And I was just kind of generally nutrition interested. I took a lot of the same classes you did. And I don't know, nutrition is just really fascinating to me. I think it's, um, I think it's something that we have a lot still to figure out. And it's just so, so important for, for how things go on farm. And it's so interrelated with management. And it's just from a, from a practical standpoint, but also from a scientific standpoint, nutrition is just an awesome field. Um, I like it into a, but I didn't know what I was looking for. I like What's it that? into a puzzle, right? So I, I tell my students, nutrition's like a puzzle, but there's 10, 10 to 12 different solutions. And you have to figure out which one is going to work in a unique situation. Yes. Which one or ones? Sometimes it's, yeah. There's not always a right answer, um, which people have a hard time wrapping their heads around sometimes. Not just undergrads, but um, people in industry even sometimes too. But I think... It's, it's funny because I got into arguing animal ethics for the same reason. So really all I was looking for was, was puzzles that didn't have a single correct answer. 
well, you found it and this is going to keep you busy for a while. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I kind of ended up in the fermenter world on accident too. Like I was looking for ruminant nutrition, dairy nutrition, um, and kind of, uh, fell into the position with Marshall there at university of Minnesota. And he had eight fermenters in the basement of hacker hall there. Um, and, uh, I really, I grew to appreciate them quite a bit over the, over the couple of years that, that I was working with Marshall and, and you now are one of the people that I call when I have fermenter questions. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, and I know we've, we've spent a bit of time talking about them, but I think maybe for the folks that are listening might not know what the heck we're talking about. Um, so can you kind of just describe what a fermenter is? Um, maybe even get into a little dual flow, what the value of dual flow is. Can you, can you give us just the bird's eye view of, of some of those, uh, in vitro? Yeah, I can do that. And I would tell you that, um, I think we went through this renaissance in fermenters recently where a lot of people suddenly had interest in using them. And so if you're an industry person, you're starting to see a lot of pop-up of their, their use and citation and, and data. And so it might be raising a lot of questions. But I would tell you we're probably going to hit a slow point as far as new labs building them because a lot of the minds that were behind the engineering for making the new sets that we sold uh, have kind of retired. So we, we might, have, might have plateaued here for a while. we got to start black market dealing out of closets again. But um, essentially what you have is you've got a, a clear jar. I mean, it doesn't have to be clear, but it's, it's nice if it is because you can see what's going on. Otherwise, it's, it's pretty messy. Um, and you've got, a, you've got a glass jar, ideally, so that there's no absorption. And so what we can do is run a contained fermentation and simulate rumen, rumen activity. Um, we wouldn't call it necessarily in vitro uh, because, I mean, I guess it's an in vitro technique. But we're sustaining that over really long periods of time. Some of the data is up to three weeks, which is actually longer than some of the crossover studies in Thai stall cows. So, you know, I think the um, to just classify it as in vitro and walk away discredits the fact that it, it's probably superior in many ways to the data you're going to generate from batch cultures, uh, for example. And um, so we've got this jar, we're pumping in buffer, and the buffer is calculated based on cow performance um, and, and what they might generate in their saliva. And we're also trying to keep an eye on the pH of those units. And then we've got an outflow tube. So a single flow, as you're talking about, basically uh, maybe a certain number of milliliters or ounces comes in every hour and a certain amount passes out down the tube and we're just constantly diluting the, uh, the solids. And a dual flow then is where we run a filter. And so we can actually, just like a rumen where the, the liquid passes out of the rumen quicker than the solids, we can simulate this by filtering some solids and just pushing out a, um, a liquid mixture. It's still brown and gross, um, but we put a, you know, like a metallic or a cloth filter on there. And so maybe we can um, do a 10 to 15% per hour dilution of liquids and a much lower dilution of solids sort of like how the reticulum will retain some of those solids for a while. Um, really nice tool, I think, more or less evolved in the 60s, 60s and 70s, and there's a lot of literature. Um, and at that time, they were trying to maintain consistent pHs. At that time, they were making consistent pHs. Sorry, I've got a lot of construction occurring over here. Um, and so they were they were locking in the pH with acid and base buffer pumps. So I think that was a good, yeah, that's a good start. But what you'll see now in the literature in the last 10, 15 years is that we've really cut those loose. So we figured out how to design buffers a little bit more effectively. And we've realized that when you maintain a set pH, that's not really simulating the rumen environment because the rumen environment wants to flux in response to nutrients. So one of the things that we were really pushing when I started my PhD was um, trying to remove those pumps because they're really problematic, but also generate then higher quality data where we get true naders and pH and then the recovery. And um, otherwise, everything else that's really changed in the past 15, 20 years has just been ways to make them more economical, um, ways to make them mix better. Um, there's a lot of debate about maybe not a lot, but within the fermenter people debate about whether or not 
they, they should be spinning much faster, much slower, because we say that the protozoa, which are pretty big, um, would get confused and, you know, chemically, they're, they're tracking chemical signals of where to swim and hide out and not pass out. Um, so confused and kind of deviate uh, away from their, their slow spots if you spin it too fast. Um, and then, of course, Ferkins had that student, um, Sanjay Karnati, who, who has the publications where he designed the protozoa retention filters, which made a big difference for us because we, you know, I'm not going to tell you that there's a lot of protozoa in the fermenters, but having protozoa in the fermenters uh, maintains some of the uh, genetic diversity as, as well. And, and also, if we're doing methane work, protozoa do have a, a pretty pivotal role in methane production. Um, and so, those filters enable us to retain the majority of the protozoa in the, in the fermenters. And, and I've, I've recently updated those again, and we've got the numbers back up to like 30,000 cells per mil. So, you know, a million in the rumen versus 30,000 cells per mil in the fermenter. But you have to remember that those fermenters get fed a much lower feed feeding rate density for the amount of volume that's in there. And so um, I just don't think that the fermenter sustains enough um, organic matter for the protozoa to be much higher in concentration. So what's really nice about the fermenter is it enables us to just apply any treatment we want. Anything can die. Um, um, and we just restart, right? We're not killing a cow, making a cow sick. I don't have to worry about a bunch of uh, protocols and whatnot. But it's an adapted culture. So whereas the batch culture, if I hit it with something, in the batch culture, and I look at a six-hour or 12-hour effect or even a 24-hour effect, um, it's a more dramatic effect in batch culture because those microbes weren't exposed ahead of time and given time to adapt. Kind of like we see in meninsin, where the rumen microbiome will adapt to meninsin over time. And um, you can see the same thing where treatments that look really extreme and successful in batch culture are not nearly as effective in um, continuous culture. And that since I do a decent bit of conversation, if not research, in uh, methane mitigation strategies, then, of course, we can see really extremely successful methane mitigation strategies in batch culture that don't necessarily hold their weight in continuous culture. Yeah. Right. And, of course, we can... And then even less in... in yeah, the and then VFA production is another really challenging thing because if you try to measure VFA production in the rumen, if there's continuous absorption and that absorption is modulated by pH and by concentration of VFA, so it's very difficult to um, cost-effectively estimate VFA production in a rumen. Whereas in the fermenter, because there's no absorption, we can we can get a true VFA production, a net production. And we actually just Hannigan um, Hannigan's group came up and did a study with us years ago, 2013, but we just published it in JDS where we quantified the um, net conversion of VFA um, in the fermenter because we were able to put in an isotope and uh, recapture the majority of it there, even in gas. So it's, it makes for a really nice tool, cost-effective. So it might sound, you know, to people who aren't familiar with fermenters and, and kind of listening, very technical and not necessarily something that impacts how we feed cows. Um, can you... Do you have any examples of, of studies that you have done or others have done that that has directly impacted um, how we feed cows and, and how we understand nutrition on farms? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, probably in my own studies, less of those. Um, although we did do a couple studies. I haven't published them, but we abstracted them at ADSA that were kind of instructive. So there was that long conversation about palmitic um, fatty acids. And the palm fats and how they increase fiber digestibility, right? So everybody says, well, that has to be a relic of the analysis. You run a fecal digestibility and uh, there must be an error somewhere. You go back through and you keep checking. You can't figure out what the errors are. The ether extract um, NDF seems to come out just fine. Well, when we ran those in fermenters and we do a dose response in fermenters, we applied 1, 2, and 3% palm fat in there. We're able to show the same quadratic response in NDF digestibility that you had in the cow. But the difference was then, so in that case, we had a, a mystery in a cow that we wanted to go backwards on. We can take those samples, we can look at the VFA production, we can look at the um, fiber degradation, but we could also take those samples and look at the microbial population and how it changes. 
and some of the data that I've got to get out this this fall, maybe Thanksgiving break, we'll see, um, is then we have narrowed down two or three genera from the fermenter that responded in population quadratically to match the degradation in India. Yeah, right. So then here's your here's probably your culprits. So that's a great example of how we, we know something on the farm, but then we're trying to explain how that actually works. Because if I go out to the farm and I just say, well, put some more fat in, it's going to increase NDF digestibility. You're going to look at me like I'm nuts because this, this book here will tell you that fat decreases in fiber digestibility, right? So um, the other one recently, something that... And for those listening and not looking, <laughs> that book was... Oh, the, the ruminant, the, the basic ruminant textbook by Church. I think this is the one that Beattie made me buy, actually. I've got that one behind me, too. Digest The ruminant animal, digestive physiology and yep, nutrition. Yeah, from the MSU SBS, $67.95. Yep. I bet you can't buy it for that now. Um, <laughs> but um, the other thing that we did recently, something that's really bothered me is is this conversation in the Cornell model about um, whether or not there's a role of an actual value to peptides, right? So the model can tell you that there's peptides. And in my head, it would say, well, if microbes could uh, pull up some amino acids or incorporate some peptides, they could kind of save themselves some energy from building all that up from ammonia. And so why, why do we say that there's no value to the peptide concentration or that peptides are always in excess and there's no peptide response? And so what we tried to do in fermenters is do a dose response to peptides versus urea. And we were able to show that as you add in urea or peptides, as you add in crude protein, we did get a fiber digestibility response, digestibility response, microbial growth, right? But this is one of those things that's kind of disappointing to the, the person who was hoping to see something different. <laughs> but, but my urea and my peptides, there was actually no difference. So in, the, in those studies, essentially what, what it was telling me was, yeah, if you put more urea in the, in the rumen, you'll get more microbial protein, you'll get more fiber digestibility. But um, if you put peptides in, there's no additional value to that. So what's my logical response? I'm a little low on crude protein. I want to boost my digestibility. I dump in some, some urea because it's cost-effective. Not what I was hoping to see, because I was hoping to say, well, the model does have a value to the peptides, but it, at least from that study, it would not appear so. So that's maybe how you take something in a fermenter and apply it to to the, the on-farm nutritionist, maybe not to the producer. Um, to the producer, I guess, more than anything, I would look at it and say, this is the way that we can roll out products and get verification on products as timely as possible and as cost-effectively as possible because whatever R&D budget it takes to generate a product, that's all getting passed on to you afterwards. Um, so this is this is a tool to speed things up. And those people who have labs with these are looking at really long wait times right now to run these. I, I've heard of wait times well over a year just to get a, um, a feed stuff or a, a feed additive um, on the list, on the docket to get moved through because there's a lot of interest in using these tools because in two months you can figure out the answer to something for 20% the cost it might take to do it in cows. And we have pretty, um, pretty good confidence in that. Microbial population is pretty representative and, and the data is pretty repeatable. It's, um, the palm fat was probably the most fun when, when we got that quadratic response and digestibility. And I looked at that and thought, no, that can't be. It was cool. And then, um, you know, now there's this big push for sustainability. So we, you know, we can use this as a really clean way to measure methane production and not just methane production, but what are the consequences of decreasing methane production? Because I think people get lost and they think, oh, well, I decreased methane production. This is the new magical additive, but you have to think about how did decreasing that methane influence VFA? How did it influence digestibility? And if the producer incorporates it tomorrow, are they going to see a dip in production? And so we have the opportunity to kind of model in these jars a lot of options before we ever roll them out to cows, because it's very difficult to measure methane production in cows on farms. And even harder to measure not just methane, but also energy status and protein status. You know? So if you can get a cow to breathe in a chamber and 
you know, those green feed hoods and tell you that it decreased methane, that still doesn't mean that the animal was more efficient. That's, that's a big challenge that faces us. And I know the Netherlands is looking at jumping headlong into that regulation maybe before we have all the answers. Right. Well, and to your point about the, the value of these here, um, you know, to, to run, to run the cow trials that you would have needed to run to get the same data that you got on that palm fat study, for example, it would have been incredibly cost prohibitive to most labs. I mean, you don't have a huge research budget yourself, right? But you're able to, to get that accomplished without having to, to apply for a big grant or get some company money or anything like that. Um, and also, I mean, you talk about animal ethics and, and trying to reduce our animal usage for research, um, the three R's of, of the IACUC, right? And, and yeah, we're able to just get such fast turnaround on, on some of these basic questions that would be so expensive and so difficult and require a lot of manpower to be able to get out of, out of a cow study. Yeah, and increasingly, running animal research is going to be a privilege, not a right. And so we need to utilize that privilege as effectively as possible, as judiciously as possible, so that we can maintain the trust of the public for us to do animal research. Because I don't think all fields are going to maintain that public trust. And um, we we need to make sure in agriculture that we do it. Yeah, for sure. I want to back up to what you were talking about a little bit ago, though. Um, protozoa. When I was doing fermenter stuff, um, when I first started my master's, uh, you we were just, oh, you know, protozoa don't live in fermenters, um, and, and but it's no big deal because it's just protozoa. <laughs> uh, and I think maybe you're a little bit triggered by that, I would guess. Um, so so why, can you explain what is it that, that washes the protozoa out of those fermenters when we run them? Classically, you don't have to get too into the into the technical details on that. Um, but but where do the protozoa go, and why do we care? Are protozoa actually important? Because I don't know. I heard that they don't actually do that much. Yeah, see, you are trying to trigger me. We should just get Perkins <laughs> on here at the same time. But um, <laughs> I have mixed feelings about whether or not we really need them. But I'll I'll talk about the the dilution piece first. So. Protozoa, traditionally, they, they sense when an animal is fed. They swim up to the surface, they eat, and then they swim away. Um, and they try to swim away from the outflow. So protozoa don't turn over like bacteria on an hourly or daily basis. They, they will require at least maybe a couple days to turn over and replicate. And so because of that, they need to sustain themselves by hiding because the, the turnover rate of the rumen is much more rapid than two days. And so in the fermenter, that becomes a little challenging because there's not really any place for them to hide. And so it's difficult to maintain them without uh, specialized filters. Um, so basically what the filter would allow you to do is increase your fluid dilution rate to be more replicable to animals, while at the same time decreasing your solid dilution rate. And by solids, I mean things smaller than protozoa so that the protozoa don't get sucked up through the liquid and the filter. So you kind of slow down the, the growth pressure on them so that they have time to grow and replicate. Um, there's a lot of fermenters run it, the world around where the protozoa are washed out. And the truth of the matter is probably in fermenter research, I don't see the effect of protozoa being there or not being there um, directly. Um, so I don't see the effect of them being removed directly. And, and in my dissertation, and we have that, that paper where we did the defaulnation. So we ran fermenters and we ran fermenters where we removed the protozoa. And we thought, oh, well, protozoa contributes to making methane. That's one of their big notorious things because methanogens live on the outside of them, kind of like fish on the outside of a whale shark, you know? And yeah, so they attach and you can actually see them glow and, and they suck the hydrogen symbiotic relationship within a symbiotic yes, relationship yeah it's really cool and um and so then they release methane right off the, the sides of the protozoa but then in my my dissertation work we removed them and we didn't see an effect of decreased methane production because it, in my opinion they just the methanogens just found another place they embedded within more of the biofilm 
they got access to the hydrogen being made by the fiber degraders in the biofilm. And therefore, they just continue to make methane. They're really good at that. The protozoa were gone, but there was no effect. And there was no effect on some of the protein degradation for the same reason. Those protozoa also have a reputation for breaking down bacteria and causing some futile cycling of nitrogen where bacteria are growing and then they're killed off by protozoa and broken down and they have to grow all over again. There's wasted energy and nitrogen there. Um, but we didn't see that either because I think, again, if you remove protozoa from the equation, the microbiome will adapt to accomplish the same things that frustrated you before. And so instead, I think it's more about how do you use the protozoa that naturally wants to re-inoculate? So if you nuke them all out of the rumen of a cow, I give you two or three weeks, she's going to have them again. So instead of trying to continuously remove them or create this vaccination, like some people were working on to kill them off, we should just focus on how we manage them. And I thought that um, some of the recent work out of Cornell did a really great job of quantifying the amino acid contribution of protozoa. And it, and it would appear that protozoa um, help enrich for some of those branch chain and, and um, especially lysine amino acids that we know are really important in animal nutrition. And um, you'll see that they have a higher concentration in their, uh, in their uh, I guess, <laughs> cells, dead cells that, that we analyze than the bacteria do. And there's also some interesting observation where the the fatty acid composition of protozoa is different than bacteria as well. And that's probably the next evolving story. It's not just amino acids, but um, bacteria and protozoa have alternating proportions of 16O and 18O related to membrane fluidity, which kind of makes sense because those big protozoa have to swim around. Um, and you can pull that from the old books, like the Hobson and Stewart book. It's, it's got that in the tables, but we just didn't talk about it 40 years ago, 30 years ago. Um, Anyway, so are they bad? Are they good? I'm, I'm not 100% sure. But what I do know is that they, they're there. And the best way that we can manage them is to try to promote situations where there's not this rapid influx, um, rapid influx of nutrients that they're going to uh, go nuts on. So one of the things about these high sugar diets, I think that concerns me a little bit, is you can see when protozoa get put in a high sugar diet, they kind of wig out. Um, they, they, they swim around like crazy. They consume as much as they can. And I think there's probably some, what Tim Hackman would have said, he's out of Davis. He would, he would talk about energy wasting, right? Or energy spilling. So, you know, bacteria, energy spill, protozoa, probably energy spill as well. Um, because their only goal, they don't care about the community's energy efficiency. They just care about, well, if I can consume it all and burn it, it's better than my competitor being able to consume some of it. And so there's there's a lot of energy wasting that occurs if that especially you know rapid available carbohydrate is not paired with something for them to grow on. So you manage that by balancing your nitrogen energy. It's more than just worrying about nitrogen excretion in the environment. It's you know if you want the animal to be most efficient, then you need to pair your carbohydrate and your protein pools. And I think that is where the, the Cornell model has been particularly useful for nutritionists, pairing those pools. But then, um, you know, protozoa also are, are really important for helping stabilize pH. So the other reason you, you do want to keep them around, even though they make methane and break down protein and whatnot, they are really useful for consuming copious amounts of starch at once and preventing that from being fermented really quick and, and causing that sharp decline in pH. And so you can see where they, they do serve some purpose in those higher starch diets. Um, especially in your, maybe in your like high ground corn diets where you have a lot of starch potential there in a short amount of time and they, they'll help manage that. Now, what I always tell the, the 4-Hers, right, because then I also work with kids, is um, protozoa are the best example for me of why you uh, feeding consistency is really important. Because they become programmed and they know when, if you, if you did like, I don't know, two weeks of feeding them at the same exact time, and then you, the one day you just don't feed them and you go and pull the sample. The sample will still be enriched from okay. protozoa swimming to the surface, yeah. even though, even though they didn't get fed because they yeah. get programmed. <laughs> and so, you know, the, the microbes can become programmed. The animal is very important to feed on a, you know, very consistent basis for a lot of reasons, but even at the microbial level, it's important. 
I don't know what your perspective is. It seems to me that, so Marshall, my master's advisor, he did a lot of protozoal work like in his early career and loved talking about protozoa. Um, and, but it felt like, you know, there was a, there were 30, 40 years ago, there was a pretty strong interest. And then that kind of, well, that kind of backed off and we started thinking that maybe they weren't as, you know, important or as, I don't, as impactful, I guess I could say. But it seems to be there's more of a resurgence in this lately. The Cornell model has been updated and is including more uh, protozoal uh, modeling. Um, you know, you're doing a lot of research in this area. You, you and uh, Jeff are doing a lot of research in this area. So is it, are, are protozoa making a comeback? I don't know. That's an interesting question. I, um, I would say no, based on the fact that I have what I would consider to be a pretty good paper, but I think it's only been cited seven times. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> there you might, go. Yeah. <laughs> it might end up being one of my better papers. And I, and I would say they're really high quality citations, but there's not, there's not a lot of people reading that. Um, but it, it did really bring to light the fact that I think over years we've misestimated and we continuously misquote the 50% microbial biomass, you know, being protozoa, the, I think the workout of Cornell also echoed that, you know, protozoa are not 50% of the microbial protein, like we suspected. It's actually a much smaller quantity. So it's interesting that they continue to get, I do think if you look at the abstracts, you talk to people, they're getting more attention, even though we're all arguing that they have less of a percentage uh, within, you know, representation within the rumen. Um, but I think it's because of the diversity of what they can do, the diversity within um, within that, you know, that, that class of microbes. I think the other thing that we're not paying a lot of attention to and we should be is the fungi. And so as, as we can improve our 18S sequencing, uh, if we can really get to where we can sequence the, the protozoa and sequence the fungi and we can better describe their role in the rumen, there's a good chance there's a lot going on with the fungi that we haven't really identified or paid attention to um, either. And so I think some of it's just technology. So as technology revolves back around and there's opportunity, um, you know, we had Tassel Park, Dr. Park, who's now back in Korea, who he was he was able to handpick cells and isolate them and then sequence their genome, protozoa cells. And um, we had, you know, uh, we had a, there was a couple students I think in Europe that were differentially filtering protozoa by size, keeping them alive, and looking at their methanogenic and proteolytic activity by size and describing it by genera. And so some of the attention grows for those um, areas when the technology becomes available to do the work again. So, but as a whole, I'm not sure that many people are are doing because I I really do think I've only got seven citations in five years. So. <laughs> And two of those so, are mine. <laughs> write that paper for Benjamin. <laughs> Do your <Yeah>. part <laughs> for protozoa work. <laughs> so what's what's next on the on the research horizon for for you or or Jeff in the in that lab there? What what's something coming up that you're excited about that you yeah, want to I share? Think we're we're kind of running a couple different directions. So Perkins and, and his students have really started focusing on those branch chain VFA, mm -hmm. branch chain amino acids, and those stories have gotten a lot of notice at conferences, and that's that's really cool. Um, on my end, we're wrapping up an organic uh, feed additive study where we we fed an essential oil product to mitigate methane. It actually worked, um, which that surprised me because I didn't go in thinking that it that it would. I, my my apologies if the sponsors um, listen to this, but it but it really did work, and and it worked in a way that was significant, right? And uh, like eleven percent decrease, and it matched previous data that had been observed in some other batch work. And um, so we're actually trying to then uh, extract the microbial you know DNA and try to explain okay as we dose in this essential oil and we got this response, what was it uh, that changed among that, that microbial population? So maybe you can get a better start trying to drive at a mode of action. That's really, you know, it's not enough to just say, I have this product and it does something. You have to actually be able to describe what it, what it does. Uh, I'm a salesman on a farm anymore. I have to know how something works. I can't just tell you it does. You're not gonna take my word for it. And uh, so try to help describe how it is that it works. And then, um, as, as I'd hinted before, I think we're, we always have this tendency to say things are true, but we don't necessarily 
we just inherited that from someone. And so I think we're going to try to circle to some of the mycotoxin work and the role of protozoa with mycotoxins. That's really easy work for us to do. Um, we have the methods and we have the people who know undergrad students who are really talented who know how to do that work. Um, so that's going to be some fun stuff that we'll probably, I think we'll be able to roll that into tri-state, if not Ottawa. Um, of course, I, there's a much more lenient deadline for tri-state than there is for, for ADSA. Um, and I'm also doing actually a little bit of welfare work, uh, undergrad research and welfare work, and probably circle back around to the importance of water cleanliness because, you know, we got six nutrient classes, but how often are we talking about the importance of water unless everything else goes wrong? If you're a nutritionist on a farm, you never talk about water unless you couldn't fix it any other way. Okay. So I'm going to, I'm going to push back on you on that. Because every time you ever hear a water lecture, and maybe it's just because we both had BD, right? But it could be. Every, <laughs> every time you have somebody is giving like the, the six classes of nutrients and they talk about water and they always say, water's the one that everyone forgets about. But everybody says that. <laughs> but it's true though, until you see like, until you're on farm and you're seeing issues and you're seeing like a lot of dirty waters or, or whatever else, like it is one thing that we all just like know, no. Um, but don't always like take it with us when we're going and doing on farm. Well, stuff, and we but... had this really cool data, you know, so you're stuck with the water you have on the farm. All right. I realize there's technologies and whatever, but you're kind of stuck with what you have on the farm. We had that really cool data that we finally abstracted at ADSA this year where the sheep, the sheep are a nice tool to use for things like this. And, and so the sheep were given three waters and we clean them at different frequencies. But after a week, you go to clean that bucket that hasn't been cleaned all week, scrub it out, brand new, everything. The sheep still don't touch that water because they go, oh, that's been dirty. I'm not going back over there. And I think the same thing happens with our cows. If you don't habitually clean the dirty waterers, then your cows eventually just drink less water. And eventually that could be a, a limitation for your cow performance. So it doesn't matter if you clean them once a month and you do the very best. I'd rather you just dump them out and hit them with a brush then bleach them once a month. And I think that can make a pretty big difference in water intake. But of course, a lot of people aren't quantifying water intake either. You know, how many people are sitting on a meter tracking that? Yeah. Well, it's, uh, <laughs> it actually, as you're talking, it's making me think in our close-up pen at, at our dairy here, we have two waterers and one of them, the cows never use and it's always dirty. And and I'm always, we're always saying, oh, you got to clean that water. Or, and I was, you know, when I was the manager, I was always saying, I got to clean that water. And yeah. then I didn't. <laughs> so it's not anybody's fault, but it was kind of the circulate. Well, yeah, that got water needs to get clean, but, but none of the cows ever use it. But is, do the cows never use it because it's never clean? Like, do they just know that it's not? And that's in a close-up pen, too, kind of a high-risk group. And that's, so. and that's a learned behavior. So I don't think that, like, and I did, we didn't do this for longevity, but I don't think that you can snap them out of that, right? Cows learn bad behaviors early. And that's what they learn how to sort when they're really young, right? We've, we've seen that data. We got the jerseys at Waterman to eat rocks. And I'm pretty sure they learned that at a young age, right? Cows learn bad behaviors early. And I don't think you can get them to snap out of it just because you have a good day where nobody called and blew your phone up and you finally clean the water, right? And that. I think it's going to be, yeah, I think it's going to be really interesting too, as we see more group housing in calves and how that impacts, um, uh, Emily Miller Cushion down in Florida is doing some cool work on, on learned behaviors in, in calves. And so like if you're group housing versus individual housing calves, are they going to pick up bad behaviors from each other? Like, is it going to, or is it going to be, they learn good behaviors from each other? It's going to be, do they learn different behaviors if they're How's and she actually just came out with a paper on that recently. They learn different behaviors versus in individual housing versus group housing, and I don't know. There's just so many things that that just all kind of tie together, and we all kind of in research we get in our little like our little bubbles, right? This is the this is the thing that I'm really excited about, and kind of forget there's so many other things going around because the farm is a system, and I know you and I have talked about that a lot that you know, the farm is a system and we have to think of it as a whole. Yeah. that's, I guess always my, my goal is to try to think out, pop that bubble, I guess. Right. Think outside that, that zone, because there's a lot of stuff that we miss if we don't challenge, challenge ourselves. That's what's so fun about teaching all these undergrads that didn't grow up on farms. 
is they are very quick to to pop that bubble and, and challenge the the norm, what we expect and what we see. And they ask a lot of really interesting, um, challenging questions. I definitely agree. That's one of my goals and not to get off on a, on a completely different subject, but you know, when I'm teaching, I'll usually have a mixed group of people from farms and not from farms. And one of my goals is always to make that psychological safety so that the students who didn't come from a farm feel, feel okay asking questions and not like they're going to ask a stupid question, because I think a lot of times, you know, they're going to come up with something that we've never thought of, but that, you know, we've always been, we've been thinking the same way about some things for, for however many decades now. Right. Um, and so, yeah, I think, and, but I, I think too, that the industry can kind of value from that approach because these students, they're, they're talented, they're good, they're learning quick, and they're going to have jobs out in the industry. Like you said, it, you didn't grow up on a dairy farm, but you've impacted a lot of cows through your work in industry and through your work in academia. Hopefully for the better. So, yeah, <laughs> I, I think so. I haven't, I haven't interviewed any of those cows, but I don't know. <laughs> So hopefully that's something that that the industry kind of can adapt to as well. Like there's there's going to be a lot of valuable personnel out in industry who see things very differently, and it's important that we view that as a strength. Yeah, we have to. We really don't have another option, to be frankly honest, right. because the labor yeah. market is going to be that's so exactly tight. Right. Yeah. But um, I think the companies that are really uh, forward thinking and grab those those students and put them on their payrolls early that are really challenging will be the companies that are looking in 30 years backwards and feel pretty good about. I think we're at a pretty pivotal time in the workplace. Now's the time to grab some of those um, people who, who think very differently than, than maybe we were, we were trained to think. Well, I mean, that's just math, right? There's, there's fewer farms. And because there's fewer, that there's more jobs in the dairy industry than there were. But if, so if we want to fill the, the greater jobs, there's going to be fewer kids coming from farms just because there are fewer farms in general. So there's fewer farm families. And so I think that, yeah, just mathematically, you have to, you have to, I, I say, accept the people, the students who don't come from farm backgrounds, but I think even maybe move a step ahead and view that as an asset to us as an industry, right? Like they, there's, you know, they come in with a different perspective. They, they're, they're keen, they're excited, they, they, you know, they're coming in with fresh eyes. And I think it serves us to view that as an, as a positive and not as something we have to manage around. So, yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. That's my soapbox. For <laughs> well, we all need one. I've, yeah. got a, I've got a few. We didn't even get that deep into some of mine. <laughs> I know. Well, I had to text, uh, I had to text Lydia and let her know that I was going to be late for a meeting, but that it was your fault. And she said it was okay because you have made her late for several things as well. So. Oh man, she should ask her about the time I made her like an hour late to feed the cows. She oh boy. It's not a good day. I'll, I'll ask her about it. I think it was it. the day we were talking about whether or not she was going to be your student. It was a long oh. conversation. Well, well, we've been happy to have her here. So she's been, she's been doing well. Ah, uh, okay. I was going to ask you this question because I know you love this question and I know we're short on times, but I'm going to ask it anyway. What's something you believe very strongly that you don't think a lot of other people agree with you on? Uh, well, I still am going to be really stubborn about those peptides and amino acids, to be honest. <laughs> I, I, I know we failed in the project, and I think maybe some of that was just the, the, the implementation, um, the, the way that we implemented the treatments. But I just don't see, I don't see a way that you can provide amino acids to microbes. And we know that we give methionine and we get a, a better... Um, digestibility, right? We know that if we feed some uh, rumen available methionine, that kind of helps with fiber and offsets some of the milk fat depression issues, right? So surely if microbes are provided some high high quality RDP, there has to be a benefit in the in the rumen, in ruminant nutrition to high quality RDP sources rather than just dumping urea into everything. And I do believe that very strongly, and I do know I'm in the minority. Um, and I do realize that we have to find a way to make it pencil. But I'll, I will, we'll, we'll find, we'll find the data. Um, I, I do, I do believe that one to be true. So, and I have, I have a lot of opinions about um, 
lab and in vitro digestibilities and, and which which ones are uh, better or worse and I, I guess which ones are useful for you. But maybe we'll have to save that for a different day. All models are, how does that go about all models are? All models are wrong. Bad. All models are wrong, but some are useful. Yeah, that that's it. Yeah. Uh, shoot, I was trying to figure out I don't remember who said that, but we all like to repeat it. And then we don't like to remember it when we go to feed animals by model. Yeah. <laughs> That's, <absolutely laughs> That's kind of true. depressing yeah. to think that by the time you've finished your statistical analysis, that what you've drawn up to explain your data is wrong in some way. Yep. Well, that's what keeps us in business, right? If we knew all the answers, then we could all retire. Yeah. Yep. I probably plan to retire before we find the answers. Yeah. <laughs> Or society will collapse. Who knows? <laughs> well, I was betting on meteors, but after last week, I'm not sure that that one's in play anymore. <laughs> we got that figured <laughs> out, yeah. <laughs> I, I was kind of scratching my head. You know, we talk about environmental sustainability, right? And everybody's really worried. But we were all sitting there, what, drinking coffee, watching us fly a billion-dollar spacecraft into an asteroid and cheering about yeah. it. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> but I thought, man, I wonder how many private jets or uh, personal personal yeah. cars would have consumed that amount of fuel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and is it really environmental um, destruction if you do it in space? Oh, it's mm, interesting. If a tree falls in the woods and nobody's around to hear it. <laughs> I mean, we, we've just now decided we're going to start target practicing with space jump, right? Thinking of that year 3100 sci-fi film where somebody's flying and they hit and they're like oh man they launched this back in 2022 i knew we'd hit it someday yep <laughs> well we got to start working on that now right <laughs> <laughs> it's time for famous three all right so i'm gonna wrap up uh this has been a really good conversation but we have three questions that we ask all of our all of our guests um and so we'll just go through these one, two, three real quick. What is your favorite dairy-related book or resource? Oh, you know, I would tell you that if you haven't read Van Sos' Fiverr book, that's that's the book. I was actually, it's Fiverr week in, in our undergrad class, and I told them, I said, you can buy this book, you can resell this book, and it will hold its value. And it's a good read. And he says some crazy things in there, Right. But I don't care what animal you're feeding. If you're feeding an animal and it relates to fiber, you will learn something important in there. And fiber is the only reason we're in this, right? So otherwise, we should just be feeding pigs and chickens and fish. And that is Nutritional Ecology of that's the Ruminants. The, that's the one. I've got two copies. I've got an orange one. And uh, was it orange? I don't know. I got. I inherited a copy and I still kept it. I just have the orange one. Actually, had it's my second copy. I I loaned my other one out, and it never got returned. Mistakes were made. That's how yeah. I have three sheep in RCs. <laughs> Do I need three? No, but it's like a well, revolving door. You always need a spare NRC. I gave one to. We had a really good master student. He graduated, and he read half of it. So I told him if he'd read that much, that he could keep it. So I'm down to two. Well, so that brings to the second question, I guess. What is your favorite book or resource outside of agriculture? Yeah, I think that's. A little bit more challenging, especially because you said outside of agriculture, right? Yeah, I think when I told you that when we were yeah. talking at the beginning, I think I said outside of dairy. <laughs> outside of dairy. You know, I read some really good ethics books, and I would tell you that um, those probably fall within agriculture. But if you have the time to read those, um, the, there's there's value in trying to appreciate the the other point of view and understand really what the animal rights and the animal well-being movements, and they are different, and what they are really after in the end. Um, because I don't think you can really come to terms with a solution unless you understand viewpoints, which actually leads to a really good book that I've only read parts of that I need to read the rest of. Um, but I'm kind of high on it, and we, we use it in class now every year. Um, but Crucial Confrontations. Crucial confrontations or crucial conversations? I went straight to the confrontation. Oh, one. I've read, I'm reading crucial conversations. I didn't read crucial read, confrontations. Yeah, read the other one next. You got to read, if you're, if you like books about confrontation, you should read high conflict. That's, I just finished reading that one this summer. That was very good. 
Why well, I, I have a notoriously confrontational um, yeah. personality, right? Yes. <laughs> um, very argumentative, and I will generally argue anything just for the sake of arguing it. Yep. <laughs> I think there's at least one video of YouTube on a PETA confrontation. Yep. And, um, <laughs> maybe I'm not very predictable in my approach, but um, the key for me with those books was how to have an effective confrontation and really reflect on what is it that you're after and, and how, you know, everything's going to involve compromise. And so, okay, the confrontation part comes very easily for me, but making it effective in resolving what frustrates me has, has always been a little bit more nebulous. So um, I tried to pass that along to my students too, to try to, you know, we do all this group project work and you're going to have that when you go out in jobs and you're going to get in frustration, frustrating situations with people. So how do you, how do you more effectively approach that confrontation to reach some sort of, most of the time there's a resolution. Sometimes you're irreconcilable, right? But um, yeah, no, that's, that's well, good... you should read. You should read High Conflict. I know you don't have a ton of time for reading, but um, <laughs> I, but well, it was really good. It was it was very well done. So, so I don't know if you remember when I took that test at MSU. They asked you what were the last three books you read. Oh. And do you remember taking that ADS test? And they asked at the end of the thing, like, what were the last three books you read? And I so don't I remember that. yeah, so I took I wrote The Invisible Man, War of the Worlds, and Jekyll and Hyde. And I was reflecting recently that I've kind of reached the same level of obscure reading history, I think, that I had in high school, probably, because then, of course, the interviews for MSU were based on what you wrote in there. So that really sucked. Right. <laughs> but, uh, but recently I read Teddy Roosevelt's History of the War of the Naval War of 1812. And if there's anything that is both enthralling and able to completely squash your desire to read, it's probably Roosevelt writing naval history. Sounds exactly like the sort of thing you would read and exactly like the sort of thing I would never even consider reading. <laughs> it was, there was moments where it was really good and it gives you a real appreciation for the birth of a nation, right? Because we focus on the revolution, but the War of 1812, we were pretty much always the losers. Right. I learned a lot more about the War of 1812 when I moved to Canada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Just... Just living in Canada, I learned more about it than I ever did in history class. <laughs> yeah, we don't talk a lot about it. And no. we have, you know, really idolized the USS Constitution. But apart from a few good days, she wasn't doing much either. There's some ups and downs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but he um, he's a really enlightening writer on the trap you can fall into when you try to tell everybody why they're wrong, too. Because a good bit of what he's written just over and over again is criticizing previous historians and all of the downfalls to their logic. And that's really exhausting. So maybe that's what it's like to listen to me sometimes. No comment. <laughs> <laughs> I'm working on it. <laughs> we'll go ahead. We'll move into the last question here so that I don't leave Lydia waiting. Um, and, you know, all of the other students that are sitting in that meeting. She's just the one that I texted because I knew she'd get it. But <laughs> um, in your opinion, what sets successful dairy professionals apart from those that are not? Yeah, I think this relates back to the question asking earlier. So if you're going to approach dairy as these are the fundamental keys to success, they've been this way, this is what I learned. It's in a textbook or I learned it from my mentor or... Um, if, if you're not able to look at every person that you work with with an open mind, if you're not able to look at every problem with a fresh take, then you're not going to be as successful. I think it's really that simple. Um, creativity has a big piece to play in it, but I'm not the most creative. I'm actually not a creative person at all. And I think instead my ability to ask questions really helps offset that. Um, and, and so that takes a lot of practice, of course. But I think the, the world is changing and the successful people are the people who are going to realize that and try to find a way to uh, continue to contribute to what is a really small field, dairy, dairy in general. I don't even care if you're dairy nutrition or just anything dairy. It's a small world. 
And um, you you need to leverage everybody you know in that small world, and you also need to be willing to work with your favorite and least favorite people in that small small world, and, and be really open minded about it. Well, yeah, I think I don't think you're the first guest that said that, but curiosity is how it's been summed up. Just that's, asking. Yep. Yeah, that's that's good. Just yeah. also be curious and don't be a hater. That's words to live by. <laughs> <laughs> Cross stitch that on a throw pillow. Yeah, <laughs> I'll send it to you for Christmas. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you for this conversation uh, today. This was really, I, we hit on a bunch of different things, but uh, I, I had a good time. So I hope our listeners do as well. Um, but with that, uh, is there any place where people can find your, your work or follow you on social or, or, or follow up with anything that you're doing? Well, I'm old. So I still use Twitter at Benjamin, right? B-Y-N-J-A-M-M-I-N. Uh, but you said you don't you don't hang out on there anymore. No, but some of us I never still got do. into Twitter. I yeah, I just never it never clicked with me. I um I still adhere to the short messaging too, so I don't write you a book on there. If it's worth saying, it's worth saying short. And it's not worth saying if somebody else already said it. Um, if you are really into uh, some mild entertainment, we have a sheep Facebook page where we're running The Bachelor, right? Pun intended. Um, the Bachelor. Yeah, there you go. But that's uh, that's more of the hobby, the hobby side back at home. And otherwise, probably easiest to find me on on LinkedIn or or my email address. So. Well, or you, can, for... or you can look me up on Google Scholar and read that paper nobody reads. There you go. And make sure you cite it. Get some <laughs> <cited. laughs> Do your part to promote the protozoal work. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thanks, Benjamin. This was a good conversation. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> yep. See you later.